This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is Intelligence Matters, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Ambassador Bill Roebuck is the executive vice president of the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. He recently served as the deputy special envoy to the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS and a senior advisor to the special representative for Syria engagement, Ambassador James Jeffrey. Ambassador Roebuck had a long career in the Foreign Service, including serving as U.S. Ambassador to Bahrain from 2015 to 2017. Ambassador Roebuck just joined me to talk about all things Syria. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop. Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Mr. Ambassador, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you, Mike. I'm delighted to be here. So as you know, we're going to dig into Syria and ISIS, but I first want to ask a couple of questions about your career, if that's okay. And I'd love to start by asking you, what got you interested in the world, in foreign policy, and in the foreign service? Uh, thank you for the question to sort of open things up, uh, Mike. Um, I got interested in uh, international relations in the world, I think, years ago, um, coming out of uh, undergraduate school. Um, I joined the Peace Corps, motivated primarily by a desire to travel and um, uh, some idealism, uh, wanting to volunteer and improve things. And as I was overseas as a volunteer, a whole world sort of opened up for me. Um, I, I was in Africa and in, in Cote d'Ivoire, but also learned a lot about the Middle East uh, from friends uh, who were there. 
uh, working who were from the Middle East and uh, eventually went to the Middle East and worked as a teacher and uh, by a circuitous route, uh, law school, et cetera, I ended up in the Foreign Service and became a diplomat for the, for the U.S. Uh, Department of State and uh, have built my career ever since, um, primarily in the Middle East. So that's really how I, I got into the whole business. So you're a little bit unusual in that you, you've got that law school piece in there. Did you find that helpful during your Foreign Service career? It was, it was very helpful. I studied, uh, I mean, in law school, you get the whole array of courses, and particularly in first year, everybody takes the same basic set. But I focused in my uh, latter two years on international law and got a lot of uh, exposure to just international public uh, law, private, uh, international, private, more business transaction type law, international human rights. And it, it was it was very useful um, as, a, as a framework uh, coming into the the foreign service. In, in the end, you sort of have to get your hands dirty, so to speak, with experience. You got to learn how diplomacy is made, how visas are issued. That's how you sort of break into the foreign service doing um, immigration and visa work. Um, but the studies were very useful as a background. So you're, you've joined the foreign service, you're at the State Department. Can you give us a sense of the trajectory of your career, where you where you served, where you spent time, the kind of issues you were involved in, just kind of a rough sketch would be fantastic. Sure. So uh, I came into the uh, Foreign Service as a young, what we called back then, junior officer. Um, I was uh, assigned to be a consular officer in Jamaica, uh, basically like a lot of the the, uh, young officers who came in back then in the early 90s, uh, right out of the chute. Um, my primary focus was on uh, visa issuance and American cit- helping American citizens who were in trouble. Um, and then uh, I knew I wanted to work my way to the Middle East. That was my interest. So um, my second tour was in Jerusalem, where I did mostly political uh, reporting work uh, in the West Bank um, and uh, did various things, uh, keep an eye on how settlements were, de- were developing, um, Palestinian political politics and those types of issues. And from, from there on, I just, I sort of went from one uh, post to another in the Middle East because that was my, my interest. I did Gaza political politics for several years, uh, working out of the embassy in Tel Aviv, but commuting to Gaza uh, several days um, a week. Um, I was in Baghdad. I was in. I was the political chief for our U.S. embassy in Damascus back in 2004 until seven, um, and uh, was chargé d'affaires, essentially acting ambassador in uh, Libya, in Tripoli for six, uh, seven months, um, and did some other stints out there of shorter periods um, in 2013, and then I was uh, our ambassador to Bahrain in the Arabian Gulf uh, area uh, from 2014 to 17. So sort of served all over the Middle East and uh, handled a variety of issues. A lot of uh, maintenance of bilateral relations with these countries, cooperation on counterterrorism, particularly as I rose up uh, in the latter stages, I did a lot of commercial advocacy for uh, US companies um, 
and trying to build uh, U.S. trade relations and investment um, in, in the Gulf, for example. So a varied assignment, set of assignments. Okay, Bill, Syria and ISIS. So your last job in the department was as the, as the deputy special envoy to the coalition to defeat ISIS. And before we get to that fascinating job, perhaps we can start with a bit of history here um, for my listeners. Can you, can you walk us through sort of from a big picture perspective, the period from the, the start of the civil war in Syria to when you walk into that, into that last job of yours? Sure. I'll give you a very thumbnail um, sketch. Um, so protests, um, I mean, up until the Arab Spring in Syria, um, Syria was a police state. It had been run by the Assad uh, family. Um, Hafez Assad, the father, um, had passed away. The son was the, the president um, in the late part of the first 2000s. And then the Arab Spring broke out. Um, and um, over time, peaceful demonstrations were replaced by um, violent um, outbreaks. Uh, the Assad uh, regime, I think, wanted that to happen um, and did not allow any space for peaceful protests. So over the course of years uh, from 2000, late 2011 and 12, um, through really um, the, the years up until I, I went out there, there was um, armed insurgent groups of varying um, levels of uh, Islamist complexion um, who were fighting against the Assad regime, being armed by different um, external players. Um, the Russians uh, entered the conflict in, I believe, 2000. Um, 16, somewhere along in there, and essentially um, put the conflict on a much more favorable uh, footing for the uh, regime. And they have essentially prevailed, I would say, uh, militarily, but they can't control the whole country. Um, so there are large swaths of Syria now that are not under the Syrian government, the Syrian regime's um, control. And um, that's sort of where we, where we are. Um, I think the, the military situation is stalemated, um, but we haven't been able to move into a real um, full peace process or any sort of um, political solution for the future, future of Syria. Although it's not without trying, the UN has been heavily involved and we've been heavily involved with UN Security Council Resolution 2254 in a Geneva process, but it just hasn't gotten a lot of traction. So Bill, great arc of history on the Syria political front. Can you do the same thing with regard to ISIS? Sure. So ISIS um, got its start in, um, in Iraq. It uh, developed out of some predecessor organizations that uh, developed in the wake of the uh, the war that occurred uh, in Iraq and the, all that set of developments that occurred in uh, 2003 until uh, 2012 uh, time frame. Um, by 2014, ISIS had exploded uh, into um, 
Iraq and Syria controlled large swaths of um, territory in both countries at one point. I think it, it had control of about 40,000 um, square miles. It took over uh, large cities um, in both um, countries, Mosul in Iraq and other uh, cities, um, Raqqa in um, north, northern Syria, uh, and really controlled the northern uh, band of both countries. Um, it was able to establish an external um, plotting uh, platform to plot terror attacks in uh, Europe and other uh, capitals and uh, represented a serious uh, security and strategic threat to the United States and Europe and to other uh, countries in the world. President Obama uh, wanted to take it on, but wanted to do it in a way that involved others. It wasn't just a U.S. government venture. So he um, organized or saw to the organization of this international uh, or global coalition against ISIS. And it has evolved into an organization with um, 83 uh, members, mostly states, about 79 countries and a few other organizations, and has proven remarkably um, nimble and effective at fighting ISIS. And um, I think we can say that, you know, without using the, the word defeat, uh, I think we can say that um, with the uh, military piece of the global coalition uh, over the last few years, we have dealt a catastrophic military set of setbacks to ISIS, uh, to their leadership, to their organization, and to their ability to uh, plan terror attacks. They're still around in remote areas of Iraq and Syria. It still requires attention and um, pretty constant CT work, but um, it's under control now. So Bill, let me ask you kind of two questions about this, this big swath of time that we just talked about. One's about Syrian politics and the others about the fight against ISIS. The question about Syrian politics is, is as you know, there's a debate about whether the United States should have done more in the early months of the civil war to support the opposition. And there's some people who say, yes, we should have done more. And there's some people who say, no, you know, we need to be careful for all sorts of reasons. Where do you fall in that debate? It's a, it's, it's in some ways an, I mean, I will answer the question. I think in some ways it's an unanswerable question. Um, I think we, as we always do in politics, war and diplomacy, we're always fighting the last war. I think the, uh, the framework of decision makers and policymakers um, as we headed into the Arab Spring was decisively shaped by what had happened in the previous decade in Iraq where we did intervene decisively and um, for, for very, very good reasons, many of them, but maybe without a fundamental under, under set of understandings about the country and the way it fit into the region, we broke its, itself, we broke the country really from its, its regional moorings and, its, and um, we've been dealing with those consequences ever since. So I think policymakers, and I would include myself in that, were um, pretty, um, cautious about getting involved in Syria in a way where the United States would essentially own the, the conflict. Um, there was a very dangerous brew of uh, jihadi elements in the country. 
uh, a direct U.S. intervention could have uh, just, I don't think there's any question we could have pushed aside the Assad regime over time, um, but then you own, you own the country and your very presence, your very efforts exacerbate uh, what is a terrorist threat and a terror insurgency. Um, so I would have urged uh, extreme caution. I probably would have uh, in a certain, a, a few precise instances, urged a more uh, robust uh, response to try to create some strategic uh, deterrence and uh, uncertainty maybe. Uh, but I, I would not have urged a, a full uh, U.S. Um, intervention. I also was heavily involved in the, the Libya um, policies that, and we saw what happened there. So there were several cautionary tales that were persuading people not to get too, too rapidly involved. Bill, the second question I think is a pretty easy one. Were there any major differences in how the Trump administration fought the war against ISIS versus how the Obama administration did? Or is it pretty much the same? It was very similar. Um, I think um, at the margins, they may have um, eased up uh, some of the um, restrictions about uh, particular um, actions that were being that we took. Um, but overall, I would say it was um, it was very similar. I mean, the U.S. military composition that was out there was the same. Um, I mean, there were people rotating in over time, but the basic um, structure, organization, uh, the way we prosecuted the, um, the war against ISIS militarily and with the global coalition was essentially um, the same. It was very similar. Um, there was a, a civilian piece to it that uh, people like Brett McGurk and Ambassador uh, Jim Jeffrey uh, had charge of. And then there was the military prosecution of the war, um, which was um, uh, the U.S. military had the lead on it, but with a lot of uh, partners in the global coalition who contributed troops or either uh, military capabilities. Okay, great. So so now you're, you're in that last job. So you're the, the deputy envoy. What's your objective? What are you supposed to accomplish? Where did you spend most of your time? Can you tell us a little bit about the job? Sure. So I had uh, essentially a two-pronged job. Uh, as deputy special envoy, um, some of it was Washington-based and with travel to um, regional capitals, helping Ambassador Jeffrey uh, to manage that global coalition um, we had different lines of effort, um, whether it was countering ISIS's um, ideology or their money uh, financing, terror financing activities, um, making sure we were uh, drumming up enough support for stabilization activities and assistance in uh, Iraq and Syria, those types of things. And I did that sort of, that was my day job when I was back in Washington. I was in Washington probably about 30% of the time over those two and a half years. And then that big 70% of my time, I was out in Syria. And um, I was embedded with U.S. Special Forces in a couple of remote uh, bases. My primary function was to um, ensure that we had good liaison with the Syrian Democratic Forces, 
our local partners, um, and, and in particular with the leadership. I was um, I was with them um, regularly. Sometimes uh, every day I would meet, depending on if we were in a crisis situation, I might meet with General Maslum and the and the, his leadership uh, a couple times a day. Um, so I ensured that we had that liaison. I got out a lot um, to sort of show the flag um, and create a sense that the U.S. had a presence there diplomatically. I visited uh, different cities, uh, small communities um, to check on local administration, to check on how uh, the assistance that we were providing and others were providing was being delivered um, and just do uh, classic political reporting and uh, showing the flag. I did um, a lot of that uh, also. And the third function I would say is I was a liaison with our U.S. military to make sure that we were all knitted up and other um, uh, capabilities, make sure that we were all knitted up together and um, you know, working from the same sheet of music. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Ambassador Robach. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So, Bill, in terms of the coalition and the fight against ISIS, who were the key players? Who were the most significant contributors to the fight? How do you think about that? Obviously, the United States provided the the leadership um, at the diplomatic level, um, at all, and also at the the military level. I, I think uh, nobody would would dispute that. I mean, we were the dominant uh, military player in both Iraq and, and Syria. But we did have uh, key allies, um, of course, on the, uh, on the European side, um, the British, the, the French, um, the Italians, the Germans um, were all uh, very important uh, players uh, with us. And we had lots of other key partners, um, some of our friends in the Gulf, um, the Saudis, the, the, uh, the Emiratis, uh, were active members of the coalition and, and were very helpful also uh, in helping us when our funding for stabilization dried up. Uh, when President Trump froze it in 2018, um, a few of our Gulf partners and a few of our European partners stepped in and um, provided critical funding on the stabilization assistance side too. So um, I th- I'd say those were the the, uh, the key players that uh, worked with us and, uh, and helped us. And what about, what about the Kurds? Can you talk about the Kurds and their importance? The um, Kurds uh, had organized with um, Arab elements in Northeastern Syria, a, um, a local organization, the Syrian Democratic Forces that we relied on. And it was absolutely critical to defeating ISIS. Um, this was... Um, a group that, uh, as I said, had both um, Kurdish and Arab um, elements, uh, but some of the critical leadership 
um, was definitely, you know, Kurdish that, that came out of, um, you know, previous organizations, um, they were highly motivated. Uh, they were able to take casualties. They were uh, quite uh, well disciplined in a military sense. They fought well. The, the U.S. Special Forces uh, folks that I spoke to um, repeatedly indicated that they were the best uh, group like that, that they had trained and equipped in, in their experience doing this over several decades. Um, so their contribution to the fight against ISIS was uh, absolutely um, essential. Um, we worked with them. We provided training and equipping and um, some partner type operations, um, but they were the backbone and uh, they were the backbone for the fighting. They were also the backbone for um, our security, providing our security so that we could function over there. And then they were the backbone for the uh, security for the region of the whole Northeast, uh, making sure cities were secure with police forces um, and making sure that there was local administration to um, ensure that the humanitarian situation was addressed and, and people could could move about with their daily lives. So they were, um, in answer to your question, shorthand, they were absolutely essential and they were great partners. So I've heard some people say um, that we could not have uh, done the damage to ISIS that you talked about earlier. We could not have taken away the caliphate without them. Do you think that's fair? I do. I think that's absolutely accurate. Um, I mean, we had uh, overwhelming air power and other um, assets, but uh, to actually dig in and dig out a heavily embedded um, force like that, that's uh, hiding among the local population. You have to have a fighting force on the ground. And they were that force uh, in, um, in Syria. Um, they um, had good intelligence. Um, they worked with our seamlessly with our military on the capabilities that we could provide. And over time, um, we slowly took back all that territory in Syria, just as we had done working with um, Iraqi military forces in Iraq. And it, it was not easy. Um, but on the other hand, they did most of the fighting on the ground. Uh, they absorbed the casualties. Uh, very few American lives were lost in that conflict uh, while we were over there. You're talking over a period of a couple of years, I think maybe a dozen or so U.S. Uh, elements were uh, lost their lives. And a lot of those uh, were not in direct uh, combat. It was just related to the, it's the inevitable um, casualties you sometimes suffer in a, a combat situation. Bill, what motivated the Kurds to fight with us? Um, why was this so important to them? That's a, also a very good question. Um, I mean, part of it was a um, a hatred of ISIS, a fear of ISIS. Uh, ISIS had attacked um, some of their um, cities um, and they fought uh, with incredible uh, bravery and tenacity to get ISIS out and to save their uh, population in some of these uh, cities along the northern uh, border uh, of Syria. Um, so that was clearly a, a motivation. I think they uh, wanted, you know, coming out of that uh, partnership with us against 
um, ISIS. They wanted, I think, to build on their relationship with the United States. Um, I think they wanted um, legitimacy uh, to a certain degree for uh, some of their uh, political demands uh, and um, some of their demands as a, as a people uh, in terms of uh, uh, recognizing their cultural identity and language and things like that. I think that was also a, a, maybe a, a more general um, motivation for, but they certainly wanted to maintain the relationship with the United States. And I, I think they continue to uh, see us as an indispensable partner and as um, somebody that as long as we're out there and are, you know, focused with them on ISIS and partnering with them, um, they benefit from it in direct and in, in indirect ways. And then the final thing I'd say is it just, to be honest, I don't think they had a lot of options and um, it was a, it was a very difficult situation. There was a war going on and we were, um, uh, you know, we were a, an, an option that uh, provided some advantages for them. And um, there were some overlapping interest involved, so they they pursued the relationship, and it's been so, it's been a relationship that has been beneficial for both sides. So, Bill, walk us through what happens when President Trump announces that we're pulling out of Syria and allowing the Turks to invade northern Syria. Where were you when you heard that? Did you know it was coming? Did the Kurds know it was coming? Tell us what happened. So um, I was in uh, northeastern Syria at the time um, at a moving back and forth between some remote um, U.S. Special Forces bases where we were co-located with um, some of our local partners forces in the Syrian Democratic Forces, what we call the SDF. Um, I did not know. We did not know it was coming. I would say Put, put it fairly, we were um, blindsided by it. Um, it created um, an incredibly stressful uh, um, set of pressures on our relationship with the SDF. Um, it threatened um, the coalition that we had built uh, with them to fight ISIS. Um, and it threatened to destabilize the entire northeastern part of Syria. It was a very um, uh, difficult uh, situation to deal with. I had some incredibly tough meetings with uh, General Mazloum when I had to sort of bear the brunt of his disappointment and uh, anger that at this sudden shift in uh, policy that um, threatened his forces with... Um, you know, destruction, but also um, threatened a humanitarian um, catastrophe, basically for Kurdish people if it got out of control. Um, and I wasn't the only one. Ambassador Jeffrey also had some tough meetings with um, General Maslum, and for it, he was feeling understandably betrayed, I think, and disappointed. In the end, uh, not to belabor it too much, we were able to uh, turn it around. We. Um, with some difficult um, decision-making and some interventions in, back in Washington, president reversed course a little bit, and we managed to um, salvage our presence in about half of the northeast of Syria. We salvaged the relationship with the SDF, 
and we have managed to continue the fight against ISIS. But it was a very tough uh, period that you refer to. Do you have any idea or if you don't know any any guesses as to what might have happened in that phone call between President Erdogan of Turkey and President Trump and you know what what case President Erdogan might have made that President Trump found so compelling? I don't know. I don't have uh, special information about what uh, entailed the conversation. I think President Trump was was not um, up until that point was not a um, really convinced that it made sense for us to be in Syria. So he wasn't really, um, it wasn't a hard case for somebody to make. Um, and of course, President Erdogan knows that area, like the, the back of his hand, they've been involved in those areas for, you know, it's their, it's their backyard. And, you know, president, it wasn't something President Trump was familiar with. I mean, he wasn't convinced it was something we needed to do. I think once it, once he took the decision and he got the, the blowback um, and some people that he, you know, um, listened to carefully, including Senator uh, Lindsey Graham and others. Um, I think he became more persuaded of the importance of our role there. Um, but I think at the, at, the, at the time of the conversation, he wasn't very persuaded that it was an important thing. So maybe it wasn't that difficult to be talked out of it. Bill, do you think there will be any long-term consequences from that situation, or do you think that we've moved moved beyond it and don't need to worry about long-term consequences? How do you think about that? You mean the uh, decision about uh, the Turkish incursion? Yes. Yes. Um, yes. I think we've moved beyond it. I mean, it, it's been very difficult for um, the Kurdish population to absorb because cities uh, with large Kurdish populations like Tel Abyad, like Ras Al Ain, um, have basically been uh, emptied of the Kurds. Uh, so there's been some, you know, some ethnic uh, uh, cleansing, whatever, whatever you, you want to call it. There, there's been some uh, severe disruption in uh, human terms and in uh, social terms. There that is going to take decades to to repair. Um, I think on the military side and the political side, it's a maybe a more manageable uh, situation, but it just makes the overall situation, which is already extremely complica- complicated and complex, even more so. Um, not clear to me what Turkey wants to do with uh, that enclave or other enclaves that it's created in uh, northern Syria. And the whole problem of Syria, all the the various stakeholders who are involved in it have competing agendas. Um, and that's an example of one agenda, competing agenda. It's just very difficult to see going forward how you resolve all those competing agendas and uh, find a political solution that stabilizes Syria. So looking forward, Bill, what do you think our policy should be um, with regard to Syrian politics on the one hand and uh, keeping an eye on ISIS on the other. What, what do you think the U.S. should be doing? I think the new administration needs to, uh, first of all, assess very carefully what our objectives should be out there. Um, we had a set of objectives for the last th- 
three or four years, you know, defeat ISIS, uh, try to implement a political solution for Syria under UN Security Council Resolution 2254, um, stop the use of uh, weapons of mass destruction, uh, get the Iranians out, and uh, address the humanitarian suffering. I think the new administration with uh, the Biden team needs to look at those um, objectives and evaluate carefully. If we have the leverage, do we have the political leverage to accomplish that? And what is what are those leverage sources of leverage that we have? We do have a small military presence. Uh, we've got sanctions against the regime that give us some leverage. We have this de-ISIS coalition. Um, we have some blocking leverage in terms of uh, normalization of our diplomatic relations and reconstruction assistance. So we do have some leverage, but um, I do wonder uh, if we have enough leverage to accomplish those things. But I think the new Biden team needs to do an assessment. For now, what we're doing out there, I think in the short term, can continue its sustainable. Um, mil U.S. military presence is stable. The, the ISIS goal, the defeat ISIS goal is uh, sustainable. So they have a window to, to do this reassessment, but I think they do need to look carefully at what has happened and um, assess if, if we have the, uh, the necessary political leverage uh, to achieve what we've been trying to achieve. I, I, I'm not sure we do, but I think that's for the new team to, to look at. The other two things need to be done very quickly. One is consult closely with key allies who have been there with us um, on the stabilization assistance side, the military side, and then um, consult with the Syrian people and um, determine as best we can what, what they want. Part of the problem is they're very divided. Bill, thank you very much for joining us. This has been terrific. Um, and, and, and thank you for your service uh, to the State Department and to our country over a very long and illustrious career. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much for having me on your show. You're welcome. That was Ambassador Bill Roebuck. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.